Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, for a wonderful Lord's Day service, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that um, your day is not limited to a service, but, Father, um, a full day, Lord, of um, meditating upon your word, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, um, spending time in fellowship. And, Lord, thank you for this opportunity that we um, have to continue in your word, studying the this great um, doctrine of the order of salvation as we consider today regeneration and conversion. Would you open our minds, Lord, to see wonderful things in your law? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to Revelation 7. We'll read verses 9 and 10. The vision of John, and he has this vision in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Beautiful vision from the Apostle John. What I want to point out is, do we really believe that salvation belongs to our God? Actually, that word belongs is added there just to make sense, more sense of, the, uh, of what they're saying But we could say that salvation is of our God. Do we really believe that he is the one that grants it to people? It is completely his, and he can only um, be the only one to give it to the sinner. Pastor Kurt talked about that last week, right? Monergism and synergism. Monergism, that idea of mono, one, Ergos, working. There is one at work in salvation. We would say, we, we would agree with that. We would say, yes, that is God working. He is the only active agent in salvation, as opposed to synergism. Soon, which means many, and ergos, working. Many working. We would reject that. Because the text says that salvation belongs to our God. Do we really believe that? And I hope we can all get on the same page after this talk. And I'm really excited to speak on regeneration and conversion, right? I'm a visual person. So if, if, if this order of salvation, right, that we've been talking about, how does God save us? If this order of salvation is a roller coaster, right, uh, uh, the regeneration and conversion would be the highest point of that roller coaster. It would be the climax, Right? As you're going up that hill, it's there's anticipation, anticipation, right? And you get to the top of that hill, right? The top of the roller coaster, the highest points, there's that stall, that and then it goes downhill from there. That highest point, I in my opinion, is regeneration and conversion. It's the moment where everything changes in the sinner's life. It's the moment where we, we, we remember, I remember when I became a Christian. For some of us, it's more dramatic than 
others, but it's that moment when everything changes. I once was blind, but now I see, and that is regeneration and conversion. So they're not the same thing, and as the more I would study regeneration and conversion, um, I thought maybe it's not the best idea to put them together as we did uh, in the elders meeting, but I'm going to try my best to cover both of them. Before I begin, we'll talk about um, regeneration first, and then conversion. And it will be very simple how um, I, just, I explain these. Right? I'm going to ask three questions for both. What is it? Who does it? Or who is the author of it? And how is it accomplished? Okay? And there is an importance to why we're talking about an order of salvation. There is an order. Okay, so we're going to do regeneration first, then conversion. And there is a purpose for that. Okay, and we'll talk about that a little later. So what is regeneration? What is regeneration? Turn with me, and I hope you brought your Bible. Um, in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 7, because we're going to be using our Bibles a lot. Um, <clears throat> Titus chapter 3. Verses 4 and 7. Does anybody want to read that with a nice loud voice? Four and seven. Mm-hmm. No, four through seven. Sorry. Who in the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, who saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, according to his own mercy, but the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's our word, regeneration. The word means new beginning or new birth. Think of John 3, 3, you must be born again. 1 Peter 1, 1.23 says that we were born again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible seed. 1 John 5, 1 says those that are born of God do the will of God. It is the idea of what Jesus said to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Today we have this idea of um, gay Christianity, right? That says, well, I was born this way, right? I was born with these desires. I was born with this orientation. And we could say, okay, you must be born again. You must be born again. There's this emphasis in the New Testament of the rebirth of the sinner. And it's described here in Titus in, in verse um, 5, as a washing. And we'll see how that correlates to Ezekiel 36, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, with that, that list that Paul gives, right? No adulterer, no fornicator, no liar will partake in the kingdom of heaven. Such were some of you. But what does it say? You were washed. You were washed. J.I. Packer says, regeneration, simple definition, is the spiritual change wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit, in which his inherently sinful nature is changed so that he can respond to God in faith 
and live in accordance to his will. So you think generation, think change, spiritual change, new nature, new birth. That's a very simple definition. We're going to see how the Bible presents this topic of regeneration. And there's a a, a bunch of ways that the Bible describes this um, great work of God. Now, I want to do that by asking the question, who does it? Who is the one that authors regeneration? Well, I think this uh, um, definition by J.R. Packer gave us the answer, right? Um, But I want to answer that firstly in the negative. Who authors regeneration? It's not man, in other words. Remember that story in um, in Luke 18 with the the, the rich young ruler, right? And Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so the disciples ask what? Who then can be saved? If it's that hard, who, who, how is it possible? And what, is, what does Jesus say? What is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, it's impossible for man to save himself. Man is completely incapable. That's a real inability. He is completely incapable of self-regeneration or salvation. Not merely on the basis of his works and his righteousness, We know that. You can't work your way to God, right? But predominantly because of the nature of his heart, of his mind, and of his spiritual condition. So I'm going to explain and hopefully um, show through the scriptures how man is completely unable, incapable, so that there will be no question in our mind, well, You know, synergism does sound like it makes sense, right? So there can be no question in our mind that man is an active agent in salvation. I want to attack, um, talk about these three things. His heart, man's heart, his mind, and his spiritual condition. How has sin affected his heart, mind, and spiritual condition? When we talk about the heart, we're talking about man's affections, right? What you long for, what you desire, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Our hearts are infected by sin. They have been uh, um, distorted. Our affections have been distorted by original sin. And we come into this world with wicked hearts. Nobody teaches us how to sin We just do it. It's our nature. Turn to John 3, verses 19 and 20. These are the words of our Lord. And this is powerful stuff. John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation. I'm reading out of the New King James, so I apologize if it's really different from yours. We might say this is the verdict. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates 
the light. And does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Men naturally love darkness and hate light. Who's the light? Jesus. John chapter 1, if you want to read that later. See, when we go out and evangelize, we're saying, hey, sinner, you should love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you should hate sin. The nature of man says it's completely the opposite. I hate God. I hate light. I hate truth. And I love darkness. His affections are distorted. How can he be saved? How can he save himself? Because he hates the very God he's commanded to love. And he loves the very thing that he's commanded to hate. His affections are distorted, right? His mind is infected by sin. His, his mind, I'm talking about his disposition, his mindset, right? His, his mind, his disposition towards God. Romans 8, 7, and 8 says this. Romans chapter 8, verse 7, because the carnal mind, that's what, that's what we all are born with, amen? The carnal mind is what? Enmity. Hostile, some versions say. It's hostile against God. It hates God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. In other words, it cannot. So then... Those who, oh, um, verse 7, sorry, I was supposed to read verse 6, what? Yes, so verse 8, so then those who are in the flesh, what does it say? Cannot, can, that's a real cannot. That's a real inability. Man cannot subject himself to the law. He cannot subject himself to the law of the gospel that says, Believe and repent. He cannot. Because why? He hates God in his mind. So like uh, uh, Joseph and his brothers, right? What does it say? They, the brothers could not speak a kind word to him. Why? Well, they could. I mean, they, they spoke the same language, right? They, they knew things about Joseph. Maybe they were virtuous because they hated him, the scripture says. The same way, in our carnal mind, we are hostile, hostile towards God in our mind. Our affections are distorted. Our minds are distorted, filled with hate towards the God we are commanded to love. That's not enough. We see man's spiritual condition. Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 We all know this. Ephesians 2. And you he made alive who were dead. You you were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, the way of this world. According to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust, desires of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the other. The spiritual condition of man is that he's dead in sin. He's dead in sin. What can a dead man do? You got to realize, when we're preaching the gospel, we say, hey, dead man, get up. Hey, dead man, believe, repent, love God. You must be born again. Not only that, now I, don't, I don't want to depress you now, but we're blind to glory. That's another aspect of our spiritual condition, naturally. We're blind to glory. Second Corinthians 4, it's one of my favorite verses, um, portions of Scripture. Second Corinthians 4, verses um, 3 and 4. <clears throat> But even if our gospel is veiled, it's covered, hidden, right? Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The unbelievers. The gospel is hidden to unbelievers. Even though we preach to them, right? The general call of the gospel, it's veiled to them. What do you mean, Paul? Verse 4. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Those who do not believe, unless they, the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. This is a satanic blindness. Man, the unbelieving one, is blinded by Satan. So that lest the light of the gospel would shine in his heart and he would be saved. 1 Corinthians 2.14, don't go there, but it, it already says we're blind. It says spiritual things are perceived by Christians. And the natural man calls, it, calls the things of God foolishness, for he cannot perceive the things of the Spirit. We're already blind. This is the type of Satan there is, right? It's like putting a blindfold over a blind man. Just in case, you know. So he won't, he won't be able to see anything. This is the spiritual state of the unconverted soul. He can't see glory. He can't see God for who he truly is. The kind, the majestic, the glorious, the one that is worthy of worship. He cannot see it. It's veiled. It's, he's blinded. Our affections are distorted. Our minds, our disposition is distorted. We are dead in sin. We're blind to the glory of God. How can man regenerate himself? How can man save himself? But we thank God for the the buts of the Bible, right? But God. In response to man's total inability, God is in his marvelous grace and mercy must supernaturally produce all desire and inclination to believe and obey the gospel call. Transforming his very nature, he must be born again. God does this. God regenerates. This is all over both Old and New Testament. 
And I want to address, how does God respond to our affected heart, to our affected mind, and to our spiritual condition? Well, to the affected heart, to our affected affections, he gives us a new heart with new affections. You see, if you have the, the sheet there, there's proof text there. But let's go to Ezekiel 36, just for the sake of time. And Kurt read this last week. Ezekiel 36, we'll start in verse um, 25. Then, this is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. The washing of regeneration, right, in Titus. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Notice the I wills. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. God is the only active agent in our regeneration. A new heart comes in. And now, all of a sudden, before I love darkness, now I hate it because of the new affections that this heart has brought. Now I love God and I have inclinations towards Him. I desire to worship Him. I desire to congregate with fellow-minded believers. You remember that? You remember that moment in your life? Before, like, I... I don't want to go to church. And now, oh, it's Sunday, right? We're going to worship. That is what God does through the new heart. New affections. How, how the, the, the psalmist in Psalm 1, right? Oh, how he delights. He's blessed. Why? Because he delights in the law of God, meditating on it day and night. Read Psalm 119. The, 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 the expression of this Christian Towards the law of God. But before, in his natural state, he hated it. And now he's like, oh, it is my, my, my meditation day and night. Do not take your word from me, God. This is what God does. He gives us a new heart. And he also gives us a new mind. Our disposition is distorted. But God solves that. Sovereign grace responds by giving us a new mind. Jeremiah 31, don't go there, but talking about the new covenant. What does he say? I will write my law on their minds and cause them, cause them to follow my law. Romans 12, 2, remember? Do not be conformed to the, uh, the ways of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. First Corinthians 12, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You need the Spirit to indwell on you. And, and 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, we have the mind of Christ. God has given us his mind so that we can have his thoughts, his desires, his affections. 
He gives us a new mind. And to respond to our spiritual condition, dead in sin, blind to glory, he gives us the new birth. The new birth. We were just there in Ephesians 2, 4, and 9. Listen to the words of the apostle. And we all know these words. But see the context that he's talking about. Remember the context says that we were dead in sin, right? Following the way of this world. Uh, uh, the, the spirit that it works in the sons of disobedience was working in us once before. But verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive. He made us alive. We were dead in sin. He made us alive. He resurrected us. He made us alive together with Christ by grace You have been saved. Verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. These are marvelous words. We can get this text in Ephesians chapter 2 and talk about justification by faith, right? Verse 9 and 10, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. But the context here is what God responded, how God responded to our dead nature. He made us alive. He resurrected us. That's over the, all over the New Testament. We were just there also in 2 Corinthians 4. How does God respond to our blindness? Well, clearly, he gives us new eyes, right? But listen to the rest of 2 Corinthians 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's hidden. It is hidden to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Verse 6. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just how God said, let there be light, and it was. God said, let there be light in the heart of that sinner. This is miraculous. This is miraculous language. Resurrection, the power of resurrection and the power of ex nihilo, creating out of nothing. Where there was no light, God said, let there be light. And there was. That includes even in our heart, in your heart. How does this happen? Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. This happens through the gospel, and that's going to lead to how does this happen? But before that, listen to our, our confession. Chapter 9, verse 3 says, I mean, chapter 9, paragraph 3, says, Man by his fall into a state of sin has wholly lost, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. By his fallen state, lost all ability to do any spiritual good in this life. 
accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able. He's unable by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Unable. God must do the work. We good? You guys following along? All right. The next paragraph says, When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin. And by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. The first paragraph, man is unable. The second paragraph, God is completely able and he is the only one that does it. He frees him from the bondage of sin. Think of Martin Luther, right? The bondage of sin. We can talk about free will here, right? There's no such thing as free will, right? Only God has free will. God has all autonomy. God has all the will to do whatever he pleases. But man, man, we just read, he cannot subject himself to the law of God. That's not free. That sounds like slavery to me. Jesus said, he who commits sin is a what? A slave of sin. God is the author of it. How does he accomplish this? How is regeneration accomplished? By what means? Well, Kurt talked about that last week. The the call, the effectual calling. Listen to our confession again. Chapter 10, paragraph 1. Those whom God had predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit. Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. Renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing, being made willing by His grace. God opens our eyes, God resurrects us, and He gives us new desires, new mind, and the disposition, the affections, the new nature says, Yes, God! I accept, I believe, I repent. This is glorious stuff. This is how he accomplishes it, through the preaching of his word and the spirit. When it is his time, he implants that word in the heart. He makes the fertile ground. And when that seed comes, he waters it and fruit will come out. And so, um, just to wrap, regeneration, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says this, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, the church in Thessalonica, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you, there's election, 
for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Spirit and truth. Spirit and word. This is how God accomplish, accomplishes his regeneration. Verse 14. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it accomplished? How is regeneration accomplished? Word, the gospel, truth, the Spirit. The Spirit convincing us. Jesus said the Spirit will go out and he will convince the world of sin and judgment. That's what he has done to us. So let's talk about conversion. What is it? And this will be a a lot shorter. Conversion, I put the, the, I kind of made a simple, um, it's, it's, Conversion is more of the broader term, the broader idea in the order of salvation, where election is a certain justification, right? It's, it's very particular. Conversion is, is, very, is more of a broad sense, and, and you'll see what, it, what I mean by that. Conversion is the immediate response of man to God's quickening work of regeneration. It's the moment where faith and repentance take place in the heart of the sinner, Okay? It's used in the Bible as turning from idols in um, Acts 15.3 where Paul is, is telling the, the, the church and he's telling testimonies of the Gentiles converting, converting. They're turning. The word literally means to turn, to turn about, right? A U-turn. Um, we see that also in... Um, First Thessalonians one nine, you know, you turn, you for we thank God because we heard of how you turned from idols, right? You converted and you 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 turned away from idol worship to the living God, to Christ. Peter says, "Repent, therefore, and be converted." Uh, some modern versions say, "And turn away or turn back, that your sins may be blotted out." It means to turn back, turn away, turn towards Christ. And I think the clearest uh, thing that we can compare it to the most for a biblical language is repentance, right? Repentance means change of the mind, but we use it in the, the idea is turn from your sin. Stop doing that and turn towards righteousness. So that's a simple definition. Who does it? And this is where it gets, I think, where we, we have a hard time because... Conversion is a human experience. At times, it can be dramatic, accompanied by emotion. The sinner truly feels convicted of sin and an impulse to trust in Christ and will make a real, free decision to follow Christ. But we must remember that apart from the sovereign work of regeneration and the new birth, we are slaves to our sin, haters of God and spiritually dead. God frees our will from the bondage of sin, gives us a new heart with new desires to make a free choice immediately and irresistibly. Christ is so glorious, so majestic, so kind, so awesome that anyone with fresh eyes to truly behold his glory will come to him in faith and repentance. So, there's brothers out there, you know, or sisters as well, that be like, well, I remember I went to the altar call. I chose to follow Christ, right? I did that. I remember I, I was there and I cried and I felt the little warm fuzzies come in and, 
And, and I just felt convicted for my sin. Sometimes it can be accompanied by, like, you know, a lot of emotion. Amen? But we have to presuppose what the Scripture says. He cannot get there on his own. God brought him to that point. We'll see that right now. Um, we read 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. Right? God called light out of nowhere. Right? And so for the dead man, he doesn't feel the work of regeneration. He just knows he's, he, he opened his eyes. Right? He just knows I was blind and now I see. Right? But regeneration precedes faith. It precedes. It comes before conversion. Even um, um, Acts chapter 9 in the conversion of Paul. Right? He's he's describing um, the 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 moment to King Agrippa in Acts twenty six, right? And he's like, and this light came out of nowhere, right? And I fell to my face, and and then uh, he says the words of Jesus, right? Um, No, he Paul Paul says, "Who are you, Lord?" Right? He immediately knows. That person is deity, right? Before, he was persecuting Christians for saying Jesus is Lord. But now, out of nowhere, he says, who are you, Lord? (laughs) Right? Conversion. How is conversion accomplished? Well, what is the gospel call? What is the commandment of the gospel? Anybody? Repent and believe. Mark 1.15, Jesus comes out, repent and believe the gospel. The preaching of the apostles in Acts. The Philippian jailer, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. The command of the gospel might imply that man has the will to believe and obey. Right? Because it's a command. Sinner, believe and obey. Well, God wouldn't command something if he wasn't able to, right? That's what some would say. But even these essential acts, faith and repentance, needed for salvation are granted by God. Right? Faith, you don't have any faith. Where did that come from? God gave you that. John, uh, and then we'll, we'll end here. John 6, 63. Not in this verse, but in this idea that God grants faith and repentance. John 6. Famous Calvinist um, chapter. Right, John 6, 63 through 65. Jesus says to this unbelieving crowd, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Context is believing, right? For Jesus knew from the believing who they were who who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been what? Granted to him by my Father. Coming, the believing of the sinner is granted by the Father. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we, we read that, right? For it is by grace you have been saved. That, 
not of yourself. It is a what? Gift of God. Faith is a gift from God. Philippians 1.29 makes this so clear. Don't get mad at me if I'm turning from here and there. I told you. I warned you. So, Philippians 1.29 says this. Oh, sorry. For no one... Oh, come on. Here it is. Receive him. Oh, my gosh. Am I missing a page? <laughs> oh, here it is. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ... Not only to what? Believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You were granted the ability, the essential command, the, 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 the crucial uh, um, um, ability that you need to be saved to believe. You were granted that by God. It's not just a decision. That you decide one day, say, I'm going to be a Christian. God gives you that ability. He grants that faith. The same thing with repentance. And I only read 2 Timothy 2.25, but I gave more proof text in the PDF. 2 Timothy 2. I'll start in verse 24. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. But be gentle to all and able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Perhaps, you better be loving and gentle, Timothy, because God might grant them repentance. He might give them repentance, the ability to turn from their sin. I don't know how we can question this, brothers. That man has some ability, some part in regeneration and conversion. I, I like to think of it as, uh, I, sometimes I ask this, if, if it's you and the unbeliever in heaven, right? You go to heaven, he goes, fortunately, to hell. What is the difference between you two? And if you say, well, it's based on my decision. I chose. He didn't choose. He wasn't smart enough. He didn't process it logical enough. I chose. And I would say, then you, that you're not going to be singing with, the, with that, that scene in Revelation 7. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You're going to be singing, salvation belongs to me and the Lord. We go halfsies on it. He made the work. I choose to accept it. Right? He put the gift in front of me, but I opened it. Right? That doesn't make any sense. Ezekiel 37, I'll end with this. It, it paints this picture, a, a beautiful vision of this reality. Right? You know, God sends this uh, a prophet to a valley of dry bones. Right? So brittle, so dry. Right? You can, Ezekiel probably walking through the valley, bones brittle, breaking under his feet. And the Lord says, can these bones live? Ezekiel doesn't presume upon God and say, absolutely. He doesn't deny God's power. And he says, doesn't say no. He says, only you know, Lord. 
And he says, prophesy to these bones. Preach to these bones. And he prophesies to these bones. Bones, you shall live. And there was a rattling in the earth. And these bones start shaking. They start coming together. And tendons and nerves and muscles and skin grow on these bodies. And then he says, breathe life into these bones. And these bones became a living army. That is a picture of our regeneration. There's no way these bones can live apart from that powerful prophetic word of the gospel in us. And so I'll end with that.